A Napa guy knows the only way you'd give a freshly minted driver a brand new car is if he promises to never drive it. Instead, let him grind the gears and knock over the neighbor's mailbox in something a little more suited to his skill level. And with over 400,000 parts and a little Napa know-how, he can safely drive something that's nearly as old as he is. It's not perfect, but it's perfect for him. That's Napa know-how. Welcome to Real Jam Radio. I'm Daniel Wuru, your host, and so happy to have you with us for this episode. I finally got on somebody who I've wanted to have on since the early days, and that's Tom Ziller of SB Nation. He's a fabulous writer, and he also compiles the Good Morning It's Basketball newsletter. We start with the Kings because he's based out of the Sacramento area, but we move into the Sixers and a lot of other off-season topics. Conversation runs about an hour five. Hope you enjoy it. I loved having him on. Thanks so much for coming on. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm thrilled to talk with somebody who is so in, who is in tune with the Sacramento situation. We'll go through it in, in, in some various things. But what do you think is the most important part of this tapestry? The tapestry of the Sacramento Kings. Yeah, I, I mean, I think the fact that Vlade Divac has really sort of taken the bull by the horns and like let everyone know in un, no uncertain terms that he's in charge, that he's calling the shots in the front office, and um, you know, he's putting together his own front office. He's trying to keep George Carl in line. He's trying to keep the players in line. He's going out there and, and making a lot of big deals. Um, I think that's been the biggest thing of the summer, whether that's good or not. I mean, as has been discussed ad nauseum, he doesn't have a ton of front office experience. He has one year of scouting experience that was more than, more than a decade ago. So, you know, that's, it's kind of the, the heart-stopping part at the other end. But, um, you know, it's good to have a guy who seems to have the full belief of Vivek behind him and, you know, doing his own thing. And I think that's better than having sort of a fractured, you know, bunch of different people with competing interests trying to, to figure this out. I think having one guy that's sort of in charge and will be responsible if it succeeds or fails uh, is a good thing in the long run, whether it works or not. So is it your sense that, Vlade is the decider more so than Vivek, or does Vlade kind of make a decision and then Vivek has to green light it? Yeah, I think it's probably more that. I think if Vlade decided he wanted to trade Boogie or fire George, um, I think he would definitely need to, to sell Vivek on that. I think there's already been some suggestion that Vivek has said no to a few things um, in terms of hiring or more front office help that may be a little more expensive. There was talk about Kiki Vandeweg actually getting hired away from the NBA at a high price to come in and, and help out with the, the nuts and bolts and sort of the vision for the team. Uh, but the Vec was actually the guy who demurred on that, from what people are saying, because uh, they didn't want to pay enough to, to pull Kiki out to the West Coast. So I think the Vec will definitely stay involved. Uh, he sold his company last year, and so he's kind of one of those 
he's now one of those rich guys that doesn't have a whole lot else to do other than run his basketball team. So I think he'll still be involved. He wants to see this uh, come together well before the arena opens. Um, and so definitely. But in terms of the front office itself, I think Vlade has a, a wide berth and a lot of latitude on, on how to put the team together, how to move forward. And the time frame is what in some ways makes this so compelling for me in that a lot of the, the most notably the move with the Sixers was done to try to improve the team this season when the rest of kind of everything was put together because I think we both agree that they're still plenty far away from, you know, from really being at whatever their peak is. And that will have spillover effects moving forward as well. Yeah, there's definitely no patience at this point. Um, which, you know, for, for a lot of King fans, we embrace that. Like, we've been building for the long run, um, for the longest time. And so to have a team that has no patience whatsoever, wants to win a year from now, wants to keep DeMarcus happy by putting a winning product around him, even if that means mortgaging the future to some extent um, and trading away draft picks, I, I think that's appropriate at this point. I think a lot of King fans are on the same train. I think where it gets lost is folks outside of Sacramento. Uh, but, you know, they, they may understand the situation, but still not agree with it. Still think that you need to build slow and, um, you know, keep an eye on the future, build through the draft, build through uh, young free agents instead of guys like Rayshon Rondo. And so I see that, but, but definitely, I mean, there's, there's just no room for, for patience. You can't keep the Marcus Cousins if you keep winning 28, 29 games a year. He's going to you know, bully his way out um, well before he's a free agent in three years. You can't do that to fans when you're opening up a new arena. You want to come in, you know, full steam, sell out the place from day one. You don't want to have those embarrassing, you know, 15,000 people in attendance games the first season and a new arena that the city spent, you know, $250 million on. So um, I think it's totally justifiable to sort of go all in at this point with, you know, whatever free agents they were able to acquire. What is the timeline right now on the new arena? I know that it's a big pressure for them. Is that going to be 2017 season? Yeah, so one year from now, I think, is, is when they, they aim to have it open. Oh, wow. Yeah, so this is sort of the last season in the old barn, um, barring any hiccups. You know, the beans are going in. Instead of a giant pit in downtown Sacramento, it actually looks like it's forming into a building, um, which is nice. So I think the idea is to have some some events next summer, sort of like they did in Brooklyn where they kind of soft opened it, which I don't think we're going to have Jay-Z concerts out here, but um, you know, maybe we'll get Black Alicious or something like that to, to open up the place. And then, um, yeah, have the, the teams open it in 2016, 2017. And then that builds in, as we were talking about with the timeline, because then you would want the quality this year to build the base for next year. Right. At the very least, you want fans coming in with a lot of hope like I said, a 28-29 win season this year is going to not do the trick. It's not going to have your best player happy. Um, and if he doesn't force a trade, you know, he's coming in to what, sixth, seventh season at that point. So having never won 30 games, it's not a good look. So, yeah, this is definitely the season. I don't think there's, there's serious playoff um, hopes amongst the, the people that run the team or amongst most fans, but I think they definitely expect to at least be in the conversation, you know, into like February, March, instead of being written off in December. 
Yeah, and there was that potential early in last season. I, I covered a game shortly before DeMarcus Cousins had, had his whole health scare, which was crazy. And the team was looking like they were coming together. It was one of those, as you, kind of in the, in the line you were talking about, where the team was playing well. They weren't winning every game, but they were doing well. And then it ended up falling apart. And if they could continue even that kind of play for a season, I think that might be enough to, you know, to really get those wheels turning. Yeah, I think they don't even need to go 500 necessarily, but to, you know, have something to build on going into 2016, 2017. I think just getting, you know, above 36 wins, you know, be up there where Phoenix was last year, where they're kind of in it for most of the season and then maybe tail off because the competition is too tough, one through eight, one through nine in the West. Um, I think that'd be a, a huge bonus. They, they were nine and five. I think they started four and one or three and one. Um, and then we're nine and five when Boogie went out. Um, and, it, and they had lost a, a couple of close games, including one against Memphis that they absolutely should have won. Um, but they had a couple of crazy comebacks from, from the opponents, um, which contributed to Malone getting, getting canned. They, they were in it, um, for, for a month. They gotta do that for, you know, three months. <laughs> it's, it's a big ask, but I think they added enough talent and depth could potentially make it happen and at least get a lot closer to 500 than they've been in a long time. Yeah, talent and depth are definitely, I, I think they're definitely better. I mean, of course, it came at a cost, but I, I, I can't shake the feeling that on the aggregate, there's some pieces like Bellinelli and um, Omri Caspi, which, which differ from this, but I think a lot of the pieces don't fit perfectly with DeMarcus Cousins, and I think that's what struck me so much about it. And a lot of that is, you know, just who was available and who was willing to take the money. But... I like a fair amount of the the signings that they did. I mean, I hate the Rondo signing, but, you know, Kufos was at a, at a reasonable number. But the problem with that is I don't think you can play Kufos and Cousins together, do you? Yeah, I think so. I mean, Cousins is he's an interesting player because he's really a power forward and always has been, even size-wise. I mean, he, he's wide and incredibly strong, but um, in terms of his height and uh, his floor game, He's really, you know, kind of a, an old school power forward. He has a spot up game. He's an, an incredible passer. He does make a lot of risk, unnecessarily risky passes, but uh, that's something that I think he'll figure out. He's very Chris Webber like in terms of his game. Um, and of course, as Wadi well knows, Chris played against or played next to uh, a, a sort of more plotting, post focused defense first center and of course that was Vlade and Kufus is not Vlade he's not nearly the passer uh, I don't think he's, he's quite as, as good a defender as, as Vlade was in his heyday but um, I think that sort of combination does work I don't know if that's what George Carl is going to go with George Carl has never struck me as the one who's going to play a, a 6'11 you know, 260, 270 guy at, at power forward he's going to play DeMarcus at center pretty heavily I think but uh, I think they can fit together um, when you look at Willie Cauley Stein in there, uh, definitely more more up tempo, on the floor, defense first kind of big man that I think can play with either Kufa or Cousins. Um, they're talking about Rudy Gay at the power forward. I don't think they have the depth at small forward to pull that off too much, but um, that's an option up front as well. Uh, in terms of fit, I mean, all you really need around Boogie is guys who will defend, guys who will pass, and, and guys who will shoot. So Rondo will pass. That's the one thing, like, no matter what happens with Rondo, bad as he was last year, he was still making incredible passes for Dallas. 
on a regular basis um, and racking up the assists. Bellinelli can shoot. Henry Caspi was one of the best shooters in the league after the All-Star break last year, playing under George Carl. So I, I think they've, you know, they've improved from that perspective. Just having the more talent. Um, you know, when Darren Collison went out last year, Ray McCallum was the starting point guard. Yep. Uh, he's third third string for for the Spurs uh, this year, and and probably gonna you know not be getting a ton of minutes under Pop. I would I would think. That that wasn't good. He had Nick Nick Stauskas, who was dreadful last year, as most rookie shooting guards are. Um, he was, you know, your first guard off the bench most of the season, um, even before Collison was injured. So that's a problem. They didn't have a whole lot of depth. Stonbury was was injured off and on uh, early in the season and didn't really get a chance under Ty Corbin. Um, so he didn't have much behind Rudy Gay. And then, you know, in terms of big men. You had Jason Thompson and Carl Andrew was injured all year and uh, just not a lot of depth up front either. Uh, that, you know, the team actually missed Quincy Acey when, when he got traded midseason, uh, which is not a good sign for, for your front court depth. So uh, Certainly, I think the depth helps a lot in terms of fit around, but you don't need a whole lot to, to really fit around him uh, because he does so much already. Yeah, it's a great point about the depth. I mean, that was something that was a major issue for them. And you can think about the idea of getting 48 quality minutes in every position, and they were having trouble doing that even when they were healthy. So when you factor in that you're always going to have injuries and ineffectiveness over the course of a year. But that also feeds into one of the fascinating dynamics with this team, which is that they have this pick, which is owed to Chicago if it falls outside of the top 10. How do you feel that that fits, not in how it fits into their calculus, but do you think this team is going to be in the 10 worst records, or do you think they're going to push a little bit above that? I think they certainly could be among the 10 worst records, but I think they certainly hope, uh, even if they don't make the playoffs, which I don't think, I, I really don't think they expect to. I, I think they do, you know, sort of expect to, to fall outside that top 10. You know, the, they they haven't been too far off the last few years, even though they've lost under 30 games every season, at least since since Tyreek Evans was drafted. Um, I I think that was the the first season of this current streak of not winning 30 games, and so yeah, I, they they've been close enough. They've been picking you know six seven uh, most years, and it's not a far cry to to be outside the top 10 there. I think there's no risk at this point this year this year if the Kings do happen to stay in the top 10 of that to getting swapped with Philadelphia, um, even if it is um, because, you know, say, you know, the, the Sixers are uh, one of the three worst records and the Kings are, you know, eighth or ninth worst and end up in the top three, even if their pick ends up above Philly, Philly is still going to have a pretty high pick. So the Kings are not in, not in terrible shape in terms of that pick swap if they are bad enough. Um, to not lose it to Chicago. So I, I don't think there's a huge concern there about losing the pick this year. I think they'd be happy to lose it because that means they were pretty good. Yeah, I, I think that's the right way to think about it. And the Sixers aren't in the position where they're, they can rely heavily on the Kings unless something crazy happens during the season, falling apart enough to make that, to switch the power dynamic for this year. Some people talked about, oh, you know, the Sixers can win as much as they want. They can, you know, go through that. First of all, they they don't have the timing to do that. I mean, the guys were already off the market for the most part. But it does also put in this crazy factor because – as I understand it, if that if you have to push the obligation to Chicago back a year, 
then that means that the pick that has to go to Philadelphia that is non the non-swap one moves to 2019 which are, which is the year that DeMarcus Cousins has will have hit unrestricted free agency but you know th- that is an issue but there's not really you know there's not really much you can do about that now except you know lament that it happened yeah yeah you're definitely risking something on the back end if that pick doesn't defer to Chicago uh immediately but uh, i really think like no one involved has the patience to be looking beyond, you know, one year from now. Um, and it's, it's, it's a problem. Um, <laughs> and it's a concern, but at the same time, it's totally like rational based on where everyone's at and, and where the fan base is. And that is a dynamic that you have to consider when you think about the the rationality of building a team. You, we talked about the stadium, and you talked about the, the, the dynamics with the fan base. This is a, a city that just fought to keep this team, and so you have that situation. But what I find so interesting about it is that it's not like they're doing it in a situation where, sadly enough, like when you see that an owner is close to the end of his life or something like that, and you see them want to go on one last run, it's more the fan pressure and the owner's pressure from the new owner perspective as opposed to those the things that usually cause a more immediate surge. Right, yeah. It's, so it's like trying to make the honeymoon survive, right? And I think there's some of that. We've seen that in New Orleans with the Pelicans, um, where you know Tom Benson takes over the team. They get some help from the state government in terms of renovating the Smoothie King Center, which will never not make me laugh. And you know they kind of went, you know, they went for broke there too. Um, as soon as they got Anthony Davis, they decided. Uh, we want to win now. We want to make sure we keep him happy, get him into the playoffs early in his career. Uh, we're going to trade some picks for guys like Drew Holiday and Omar Sheik and go for it. And they have. Um, and it worked last year. They got into the playoffs, and they look poised to to do that again this year with some breaks. And so some teams are just in this position. I think small market teams tend to be a little bit, you know, under pressure more than the big market teams in terms of having a uh, a real rush to get back. Um, Milwaukee has been a team that's always sort of poo-pooed tanking and, and always wanting to be in contention for a playoff spot because that's what keeps fans interested and, and that's what keeps money coming through the gates. Um, you know, they bounced back really, really quick from their awful season two years ago, um, made the playoffs last year, and now look to be one of the sort of rising teams in the East. They also happen to be pitching a, a new arena to their fans, so there's always sort of these outside forces that are influencing what teams are doing beyond just the sort of by the book, build through the draft, build young, keep your long-term assets uh, safe, don't risk it, that sort of strategy. There's always other considerations that need to be taken into account. Yeah, that's a great point. And incidentally, the, the team that did one of the big deals with New Orleans that also did one with Sacramento was a team that you wrote a really good piece on about how Philadelphia's process now isn't going to hurt them later on. It's something that I've thought about a lot. I don't think I've ever written about it. But the basically the idea that when they need to be good, they'll be good enough to get interest. Yeah, I think there's there's so many angles to the Philadelphia thing, right? There's It's just all over the place in terms of what this means for team building and what it means for fandom and what it means for the league and whether the league should be actively trying to to dissuade teams from following this path. I mean, it's just like a whole Pandora's box of issues. Um, but I think the one issue that I, I was talking about this week was, you know, can you sign free agents 
um, if you have this reputation as being a horrible team? And the answer is, when you're a horrible team, no, it's very difficult to sign free agents. I think the Knicks and the Lakers showed that, even though uh, the Lakers were very recently NBA champions. Um, and in the, the Western Conference Finals or the second round or the, the, um, the semis on an annual basis, they have proven that if you're bad for a couple of years and you don't show any signs of getting a lot better quickly, big free agents are not going to sign with you. Um, and so that's not a surprise necessarily. I think when Philadelphia actually wants those free agents, they'll be a little bit better, whether it's through the draft, whether it's through trades. At that point, you know, money talks and, and what have you done for me lately and what are you going to do next year is the big thing. So when you look at Greg Monroe signing with the Bucks, they were the worst team in the league two years ago, uh, rose up towards 500 this year, got the sixth seed and looked to be a, a promising team into the future. That's where he signed instead of the Knicks or the Lakers. And so, uh, I think I can see, I, I can certainly see Philadelphia in that position in a few years with the young guys they have and the assets that they've stockpiled. Certainly, um, you can see where they're headed. And at that point, you know, money talks. They're going to have oodles of cap room um, for eternity, um, and they'll be able to draw guys if they need to. And also, when you think about it from a depth issue, we talked about this with Sacramento, you can throw money and playing time at a group of guys, and you will get them. You know, you think about somebody like Jeremy Lin, like if, if – Philly had wanted him for let's say four million for four million this year. I'm I'm pretty confident they could have gotten him. I mean, he would have gotten a ton of minutes and things like that. Especially because you know they traded Carter Williams and they you know they have guys, but they don't have everybody. And so if you can get those players, and then you still have a chance with maybe not you know the Kevin Durant's of the world, but the next tier down, then you can always do that. And they have so many draft assets that they might not even be looking for that many guys. Yeah, that's a great point that you can overpay for for depth. Uh, very easily, especially with the cap going the way it's going. And if you have a lot of cap space, I mean, let's be honest, like Milwaukee, Sacramento, Philadelphia are not getting the LaMarcus Aldridge's, the Durant's, the LeBron's, the Dwayne Wade's. They're not getting those guys. So they need to be looking to the second tier as the best case scenario already. Um, and then when you look at the third tier and below, and I mean, you could argue that the Kings were looking at, you know, the fourth and the fifth tier. Um, and they went on their signing bid. When you look at those levels, like money talks more than anything else. And, you know, to, what sort of spurred my discussion of this issue was Jared Dudley saying that um, he would much rather sign with the Kings than the Sixers because the Sixers weren't interested in winning. I think if you ask Jared Dudley, you know, once the Sixers win 35, 36 games, whether that calculus changes, I think it absolutely does. Um, because they they will have showed that they're interested in winning. At that point, you know, the money talks, the opportunity, the minutes, the fit, all that stuff comes into play, and, and that's where you can nab those guys in free agency. Yeah, and as you brought up in the piece, um, the team that I was around because I covered them was the 2011-2012 Warriors blatantly tanked for Harrison Barnes. They sat Curry. It's actually kind of amazing to me how much that affects Curry's rep even now when he was shut down largely as a precautionary measure and as a covert tanking measure. And mm-hmm. then a year later, they sign Andre Guadalla using cap space to a contract right. that, that he, he basically, he turned down, I believe he turned down more money in Denver or was close. So you have to think about that, how quickly that can turn if you have success. Right. Yeah. And, wasn't that the year that Curry signed that ridiculously low 
extension as well after the season. Yes. So they they really had three reasons to to sit him, and they all panned out. They got him on one of the best deals in the NBA, if not the best deal. They managed to to tank all the way and keep their pick, and and of course he he's been incredibly healthy since. So that was one one uh, tanking move that totally worked out for them. Yeah, and it also was compounded by them del- trading for Andrew Bogut, who wasn't going to play the rest of that year. So they, they really right. put the pieces together in a really good way, though it drove the fans absolutely insane at the time. Yeah, and drove Rick Barry further insane than he already was. Which oh, was yes, it did. Already. <laughs> but, yeah, so I, mean, I, th- I think the point there is that when they're ready to, to move forward, that they, they certainly can, and the exploding cap is going to change that. But one of the other things I wanted to talk with you about, you had the, the great free agent list, and one of the major dynamics for me of this summer was guys like Chris Middleton not hitting the open market and taking what I thought was less money than they quote-unquote deserved to sign before the moratorium ended with their teams when they were restricted free agents. Yeah, Chris Middleton was an interesting case because before the season, I know, you know, Zach Lowe and a few other guys that pay really close attention sort of tabbed him as a guy who was going to potentially make himself a lot of money that season. Um, and he certainly did. He panned out perfectly. I think that is a, is a big factor. So like at the end of the season, Chris Middleton saw what he was able to do with Milwaukee with Jason Kidd and the type of players that they were putting together defensively, um, in terms of getting him open shots on the perimeter. I think he saw that and felt incredibly comfortable with that. And, you know, 70 million is, is not uh, a small matter to risk when you're going to go out there. Who knows what Milwaukee would have done if they were going after a guy like Monroe and Middleton wasn't able to get an offer sheet from someone else, which is sort of dangling out there. He could have lost money on that. And, you know, he didn't really... In the grand scheme, I'm not sure he gave up a ton by not going out and chasing a max four-year offer sheet in terms of, of what he would have ended up with in the long run. Uh, I think he, he's a confident guy that does believe in himself, but at the same time, if you have a chance to lock up $70 million after you know a couple years of a career, one really, really good season, uh, I think you do it. Just, you know, it's similar. It's a little different with Draymond Green because, you know, they won the championship and he was the runner up for defensive player of the year and talked about as an all star and everything. But, you know, a little bit of the same talk there. Uh, he took a bit less than the max to stay with Golden State when he very easily could have gone out and, and pushed, um, to get the full max from someone else, um, which Golden State, of course, would have matched. You know, I think there's, there's a certain dynamic of comfort and not wanting to, to sort of make an example of yourself or stand out for the wrong reasons necessarily. I don't know how fair that is, but I think there's something to that there. The other component of it that I was thinking about in terms of how this process worked differently than the last couple of years is that it moved so quickly that mm-hmm. teams that would have otherwise had offer space moved moved on to other things. You can think about a team like Sacramento you know, doing what they did. And so if, you, if you're, let's say, Sacramento, and you'd love Chris Milton, you'd probably rather have him than some of the way they spent their money, but... If you think that Milwaukee is going to match whatever you give him, like let's say they gave him his max, so 470, and even if they made the final year a team option, then if you assume Milwaukee's going to match, then you're not only missing, you're not only missing out during the time, the three days, you're missing out all the time before that 
because you you can't use your money then and you're probably going to have it at the end anyway. So while you could maybe get that offer from a team, let's say like the Sixers, which is actually a piece I wrote for the Sporting News that they should do that and they totally should have. If they did, they might have offered it, who knows. But that changes the dynamic for players too because you can see that market of teams that are willing to basically do you a solid thin out and that makes it so much harder to get any leverage. Yeah, restricted free agency is is not a good place to be if you're not one of those surefire max guys like Kawhi or someone like that. It's, it's you're at a real disadvantage, and I think that may be the case. You know why more players are taking those early extensions that are for less than the max um, after their third season. Um, you know the, the obvious stars like Kyrie Irving are, are taking the full max. Of course, because it's getting offered. Um, but when you look at guys, you know, maybe one tier below, they're, you know, sort of holding out. I think in the future they may um, just go ahead and sign those those contracts, even if they're giving up a little, just because they're not going to have leverage and restricted free agency. At the same time, you look at the guys who did sort of have to wait on the vine for another team to make an offer, like Anis Cantor. He still got paid. Um, he found a team, you know, whether that's through his agent's good work or just sort of luck of the draw. He found a team to, to give that offer and he ended up getting it uh, from the team that, that he wanted to be with. Um, you look at a guy like Reggie Jackson who just sort of hung out there uh, without any offers coming in. Um, and then, you know, Detroit did what it needed to do in free agency, um, went out and got Marcus Morris and did a few other things and, then just decided to go ahead and give Reggie Jackson what he wanted and stop waiting for you know, the hostage situation to, to strike. So it's a restricted free agency is definitely weird. It's definitely a, uh, a pressure point for, for the players that experience it. I can't imagine how stressful it is for, for a guy like Reggie Jackson who has to sit around and wait um, for, for one of these teams. Of course, his agent is, is no doubt working hard to, to get teams lined up, but um, the, the other interesting thing with the Sixers idea, so they have all this cap space, no intention of actually using it, um, and they have an opportunity to either, you know, go and drive up the price of another player, uh, make the team sweat, or potentially get, you know, a player that they can, you know, perhaps include in their core or, or flip later on, uh, for more assets. Uh, I think the reason that they may have trouble pulling such a plot off is, can you imagine the sense of dread if you're the restricted free agent who signs that deal? You know, you're a guy like Kristen Thompson who is still sort of working on his deal with, with the Cavaliers, um, or you're another guy, you know, like Chris Middleton or someone like that. Imagine you sign that deal with the Sixers and, and your team makes you wait those three days. Imagine the dread you must feel. Like, what if my team doesn't match? What if I actually have to play for the Sixers this year uh, when they're aiming for, for 19 wins? Um, I think that might be a factor in terms of, you know, per- perhaps them getting involved and offering those uh, crazy contracts, but the players just saying, nah, I think I'll sit this one out. That's a fascinating idea, and I definitely think, especially with the, what Jared Dudley said, that that could be a sentiment. I mean, I, I, I probably think about this a little bit differently than many players, but they play at such a fast tempo that I think you could you could put up some nice stats as well. I, I think a lot of players, if they wanted them, could do well to use that as a boost in value, just like the guys who played under D'Antoni in the mm-hmm. Bad Lakers year made a lot more money than the guys who played under Byron Scott. And right. you can see that sort of a dynamic. But at the same time, 
those players were signing more of a short-term deal, you know, they're signing the shorter-term deals. If you're signing a 3-plus-1, let's say, with the Sixers, while you can expect that they would move you if, if, they, if it didn't get matched, or that the Sixers would be better, you can't really see that far into the future. Obviously, that would be your hope, but that wouldn't be necessarily your expectation. And that's a great point that they might not be be seeing that kind of the the rosier picture that those of us who are optimistic on the Sixers see because they're looking at a year of just torture on the court. Right. Yeah, I mean, when you look at having to play for a, a crowd that's like falling asleep most of the time, if they're even there, um, and no disrespect to the Sixers fans, but like there are actual pictures of, of fans falling asleep courtside at Sixers game within the past couple of seasons. I mean, just the environment. I know Brett Brown is um, considered, you know, a good motivator and has good schemes, especially defensively. Um, and, of course, the fast pace really boosts per-game numbers, um, especially if you're getting a lot of minutes because their depth is so awful. But, yeah, I mean, if you're signing a, an offer sheet, that's at least three years. And you've got to think that put in place on a on a good team, a competitive team, you're, in, you're going to be in better shape once you do reach free agency. Um, in terms of getting some good money versus uh, hanging out with the Sixers tanking crew and uh, hoping to capitalize on that. I think if, you, if you're if you a restricted free agent um, that's just trying to get a max out of your team uh, and you do sign a, an offer sheet with the Sixers, I think there's got to be some sort of secret clause in there that, you know, if the Sixers haven't, you know, won 10 games by the, by the trade deadline, they have to, like, they, they have to move you. <laughs> That's, yeah, I, I mean, you have that. And then another piece that you didn't really talk about in your piece, but I've wanted to write about before that ties in with it is a lot of people have talked about how this being so putrid for a period of time that is indeterminate at the present is really hurting, you know, cause hurting the development of their guys. And something I thought about before the beginning of last season was what if other than one or two guys they don't see any of these players as their long-term pieces, and it's the the guys that they're drafting, you know, the Joel Embiid's of the world or their future picks, like now Jaleel Okafor. So they're, a guy like Marco Carter-Williams, you can treat him as quote-unquote damaged goods. He's always, you know, hurting his confidence. But if they don't see those as their as the pieces of their future, then they don't have to worry about any theoretical damage that it causes. Yeah, but they have to have at least some guys that are part of their future. Otherwise, they're just treading water, right? True. If they don't see any of these guys that are on the roster now, including Merlin's Noel and Jalil Okafor and perhaps Joel Embiid, uh, if they don't see any of those guys as part of the core, it's like, what are they doing? They're just stockpiling, you know, draft picks and, and foreign guys and, and cap space. Um, so I, I think the concern for me is those guys that you hope pan out um, and are good enough to build around, what's all of this doing to them? Yeah. I think especially a guy like Noel right now, who sat out the first year, had a, a, a decent season last year. I say decent, you know, he was runner-up for, for Rookie of the Year, and um, he he had a, a very good season uh, given his, his background and uh, what he was coming off of and what was around him. Um, I, I think on, like, Michael Carter-Williams, I don't think we know how good he he, he is. I don't think we know yet. Um Nothing that happened in Milwaukee was necessarily encouraging because um, he was a big downgrade from from Brandon Knight, who in Phoenix was a huge downgrade from Goran Dragic. Um, and so that's not a good train to be on the end of. But 
Um, he had so little talent around him in terms of, of shooting and, and post presence in Philadelphia that I think, you know, if he did develop, we don't know how much um, he could have developed with better players. We don't know um, how much of that was real and, and how much was uh, stunted based on their system um, and their constantly rotating cast of characters, which I think is another sort of problem when you're when you're building, especially around guards, and they don't really have a guard that they're building around at this point. Um, they just have the the high prospects up front, but guards sort of need to get comfortable. And when you're playing 25 guys a season because of all the 10 days and all the guys that you're taking flyers on and sending out, um, that's definitely not good for chemistry and not good for um, building consistent habits. And so I, I think it can be a problem for the guys that they um, you would think they want to keep long-term. Yeah, it's also a huge issue what you were talking about specifically big men, and I think of this especially in terms of Julio Okafor, is it's going to be hard to evaluate him without quality point guard play because big men in the modern NBA and the old time NBA, they need somebody to get them the ball. And that I, this is the year that I think that they that they should have made a move. You know, even if it was a guy like Jeremy Lin or you know somebody of that caliber, you could get you know pay him five million for one year just so you're not playing blind with a guy like Jaleel and that would have made a big difference. You're still not going to be good. You're probably still going to be the worst team in the league on paper, but at least then you have a piece that makes it easier to evaluate everything else. Yeah, absolutely. I think they could definitely use a veteran point guard, um, or at least uh, a guy who's been in the league a few years and, and we know can play actual point guard, um, not like Tony Roden or someone like that who's definitely more of a combo, but a guy who can set up his big man, who can lead a team, organize the defense from the top, um, and then organize the offense from midcourt as well. You know, and I think maybe they think they have that guy in Brett Brown who can do it from the sidelines, but uh, I'm not sure that's that's the best route. You know, it's it's looked like it's worked with, with Noel. We have no idea how much it would have worked with MB because he hasn't been on the court. But um, Okafor, you know, he's a smart player. He's kind of a, a, a post guy who, who, who kind of does stuff on his own. He's not going to be you know, like a, a big um, pick-and-roll guy necessarily. He could turn into that, but I think he's more of a post guy at this point, more of a, a Greg Monroe type uh, offensively. And so I think we'll see, but I, I definitely agree with you. They, they could have used uh, – I'm not going to say Jeremy Lin <laughs> based on his turnover numbers, um, but, um, you know, I, I think they could have used like a, a good, solid um, mid-rung point guard, certainly, just to see what they have with those big guys and give them some consistency in the backcourt. Yeah. Moving on just to the offseason more in general, what, was there any team that, maybe not they improved the most, but a team that offseason that you really liked? Ah, uh, good question. I'm, I'm sure I've written about this at least once, but I'm really interested in what the Pacers are doing mm-hmm. and seeing how they come out of it. I mean, it, it seems like we forget that you know, towards the end of the regular season last year, like teams were legitimately afraid. Uh, the teams in, at the top of the East were legitimately afraid of of the Pacers, what they would be like once Paul George came back. You know, would they give the Hawks a run for their money in the first round? Would they give the the Cavaliers a run for their money um, if they got up to the seventh seed? Um, it didn't didn't work out like that. They didn't make the playoffs, but you know, Paul George is you know, one of the 10 best players in the league, and he's coming back after a full year off. So he'll be um, healthy and, and ready to go. He's playing a lot of power forward. Um, they've moved on from, from David West and Roy Hibbert. 
up front and they're going to play uh, faster. Miles Turner looked really good in the summer league um, for the Pacers, and I think he's going to be a, a, a nice rookie, maybe one of the top five rookies in terms of impact because I think he's going to get the minutes. Their backcourt is really interesting with Monte Ellis and George Hill. I think they have a nice uh, fit together. We'll have to see how it plays out on the court, but on paper, and just thinking about the types of players there and types of plays they make on both ends, I think that's a pretty good fit. Um, and then, you know, Frank Vogel has, has something to prove after last season. I think they were worse than people even expected with the Paul George injury last year. I think the way that Vogel's handled Hibbert um, has drawn some criticism fairly over the past year or so, year and a half. And so I think it'll be interesting to see how they pan out. Um, I, I think they improved. I think getting getting Monte, who is not one of the top free agents, but certainly uh, has a role in the NBA and has played on some, some good teams. I think he's a good fit there, and I think you know Miles Turner is certainly interesting. Out west, I mean, there's only so much you can say about about the Spurs, but I think the Clippers, you know, um, they went from disaster to to putting together a nice off season within the span of you know an eight hour hostage situation, and so I I like what they've did what they've done. I think they can rival the the Warriors and the Spurs um, at the top, and you know I'd sort of lump the Grizzlies into that mix as well. But um, when you talk about a guy who was a very important player for, for one of the best teams in the league two seasons ago, and Lance Stevenson had a disastrous season last year, but um, has some veterans around him now and some guys who can potentially put them in line on the court, especially with Chris Paul and, and Paul Pierce, who are two guys who take uh, no crap from anyone. Uh, I think that's a good mix. Um, the front court depth leave something to be desired. I'm not sure Josh Smith, Josh Smith was the right guy. I think they may have needed a center more than that. But, um, you know, Spencer Hogg's thing didn't work out last year if they moved on from him. But overall, I like what they've done. I don't know how much Pierce has left, but he'll be around when the playoffs start, as he always is. And so uh, they're definitely uh, a team that improved quite a bit. It was already incredible last year. So uh, I'm excited to see what they do this year. I like to think about the quality of off-seasons based on the degree of difficulty, and part of the reason the Clippers were so impressive is that they had an insanely high degree of difficulty because they had Mm -hmm. to keep DeAndre, and granted, they might have gotten a little lucky with how that happened, but beyond that, they had very few resources to get better, especially when they kept Jamal Crawford, and they got Paul Pierce, who's probably the best player ever to sign for the taxpayer mid-level exception. Their (laughs) minimum guys we're all better than the minimum, and that's exactly what being a major market team is about. You know, they're the only legitimately good team in a major market right now, so they're getting those perks with guys like Prigioni, Josh Smith, you know, even if Josh Smith isn't perfect. I also really like Cole Aldrich there. He's not the greatest player. You know, he's not going to be set the world on fire, but I think he can give them 10 minutes a game, and those 10 minutes, I trust him more than Big Baby, so that's a, a very small win. And on the on the East, the, the team that I think did a couple of fascinating things in a positive way is Toronto. So the Damari Carroll contract was a little bit surprising at first, but when you saw what a couple guys got later, I think it looks better now. I think it looked fine then, but it looks better now. And they got a first-round pick for Grievous Vasquez and the craziest move maybe of the whole offseason so far just because the Bucks traded that Clippers first for a guy who's expiring contract who's not even a starter. But And they replaced him with DeLon Wright and presumably Norman Powell, though Powell will probably play the two, 
who might not be better than him this year, but they'll be pretty good, and they're under contract for a lot longer. So they got, I think they got better in a meaningful way. They lost Amir, which hurts, but they, they got, I think they got better. And they also got together in a way that I think makes more sense for their prime and for their peak. So I, I, I really liked what they did. Yeah, I'm a little mixed on Toronto just because I don't know how that front court situation is going to pan out with Valanchunas. Um, I know Carroll's going to play more four um, than he has ever, but, um, you know, there's still some big guys in the East that can be problems. Um, I think they're going to have real problems against them unless Jonas picks up his game. I, I, I You know, it's sort of like any team um, that stars Kyle Lowry, you know, their their team is going to rise and fall on the health of Kyle Lowry and how well he's fitting in with the coach. I think there's no question that he fits well with Dwayne Casey, and uh, if he's healthy, he'll be really good. Um, they just I, – I, I'm not sure I'm convinced that him and DeMar are enough offensively for that team. Uh, DeMar is a, a really good defender and a good shooter on offense. Doesn't create much. Um, so you're still relying on those two guys in the backcourt. They lost Lou Williams, which I think is a, a big loss. It, it was a heist to get a first-round pick for Vasquez, but losing Lou Williams in free agency was was a big loss, I think, for them in terms of having just another creator on the floor. Um, we'll see what Corey Joseph can do. I'm high on Corey Joseph, but um, he's going to be put into the fire. He's going to be put in a lot of situations where he needs to, to be the man on the court, and he hasn't had that experience in the NBA thus far. Um, so it'll be trial by fire for him. So I'm a little mixed on Toronto, and a lot of it is just, you know, what what's Valanciunas going to become as an NBA player and when. The, another team that I've been thinking about the last couple of days, now that we have more of an idea of what teams are going to look like, is I have no idea what the Suns are going to be, but I'm absolutely fascinated to see what happens when they get there. Yeah, the Suns are an interesting team that, you know, went all in for for Aldridge and, and split up the Morris brothers, and which was probably a good thing for, like, uh, given the, the struggles that they had last year with both the, the coach and the local law enforcement. But, yeah, they're an interesting team. I'm I'm a big fan of Brandon Knight, and I think he's going to be a really good point guard in this league. He was dreadful um, in Phoenix last year after the trade. Uh, and a lot of that was injury fit, um, learning the new system. But I, I, I think he's good and has the potential to become really good. I think he's a good fit with Eric Bledsoe in that backcourt. Um, with Marquise Morris, they have a slew of young big men, and now they added Tyson Chandler, who's just about the best mentor you could ask for for guys like Alex Len. And um, so I'm very interested in what they what, what they're going to do. I don't know about this year though. They tailed off pretty hard last year after the the Dragic trade and losing Isaiah Thomas um, in that trade. You know, they tailed off hard enough that I'm a little skeptical that they're going to be one of the best eight teams in the West this year. Um, we can count on the Blazers slipping. I think a lot of people are counting on the, the Mavericks also slipping, uh, but the Thunder are certainly rising into one of those spots, and so it's going to be tight uh, to try to try to slip into the West playoff race. Um, we have the Jazz coming up, and Pelicans may have gotten better, or at least stayed the same. It's going to be tough, but definitely interested to see how Knight fits in and how Chandler sort of sculpts that, that front line and helps the young guys improve. I don't think they're a playoff team either. I think that they'll be they'll be in that mix of if you know if some teams fall off if they if teams have bad injury luck 
they can get into the mix, but I don't think they're they're even in the top nine right now. But I, I there are a lot of teams that yeah, it's just seeing how it works on the floor. Like you know, with the Lakers, are what kind of team are they going to be? I think the Lakers are a lot better than a lot of people are expecting. Their talent is has been upgraded substantially. Um, I would I would say. Um, I don't know how D'Angelo Russell is going to be as a as a rookie, and really Julius Randle is going to be a rookie as well. Um, you know, those guys are going to go through some struggles, but they're both you know smart, active kids, and I think we'll put it together at least in the back half of the season and show some stuff. Um, and Randle was great in the off in the uh, summer league, so I'll see how he does. But you know, when Kobe's on the court, um, even in recent years, uh, as he's aged, he's been you know really good. Um, more efficient than he, than he had been earlier in his career um, when he was, you know, firing up 25 shots a game. So if he's healthy, you know, he's actually, you know, their best player, um, which is a little surprising to people who, who only see the DMPs because of injuries over the last few years. Um, Hither, you know, is the best big men they've had since, since Powell, um, which is not saying much. No offense to Jordan Hill, but um, he's a big difference maker defensively, which is where they've struggled idly over the past few years. And it's uh, a contract about, year for him, too. Right, right. Everything changes in the contract year. Um, Lou Williams is like, you know, a fantastic upgrade in the backcourt over what they've had. Jordan Clarkson's there. You know, they could be a, a 41 team. I, I think I'd bat an eyelash, um, which is a huge improvement over what they did last year. So, I, I, you know, they could also win 120 games uh, if Kobe gets hurt again and, and Hibbert doesn't turn out. I mean, they do have Byron Scott coaching the team still, which is a huge uh, problem for them. So they're definitely a boomer bust team uh, in the West. It'll be interesting to see how they play, how much Byron's newfound love of the three-pointer actually takes on the court uh, versus you know the style that, that his team's been playing for a few years now. Yeah, it's definitely true. I mean, I think that I, I think they're another team that is not a playoff team, but that has the potential to be good. And and it's another argument for me. I'm a big proponent of the top 16 system, just in terms of opening up the process. Because the problem with the West is, a couple teams can fall off, and it's still going to be crazy hard to make it in the West. Right. Yeah. I mean, you 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 have to win 45 games, I think, to to think you have a shot at the playoffs in the West, which is crazy, especially when 38 teams or 38 wins get you in in the East. And so I, I think it is a deterrent to some teams in the West, like. You know, how much, how much more would the Jazz have, have done, you know, in the back half of last year? How much better would they have been if they actually had a shot at making the playoffs? Or what would Phoenix have done differently last year if they didn't know that they were in a dogfight just to get in with the eighth seed and be a sacrificial lamb for the Warriors? Um, you know, it changes the calculus for everyone in the West and, uh, usually not in a good way. Like teams do not go out typically and, and make big improving moves at the deadline. Uh, when they're, you know, 10th, 11th place in the West. So, you know, whereas on the other side, if you're, you know, 10 games out um, in the East, uh, if you're in 13th place and at the trade deadline, you still have a reasonable chance of getting into the playoffs just because everyone is so bad that, you know, a five-game win streak can actually move you up the standings quite a bit. So um, it's definitely something to keep in mind looking at the teams in the West, how much, the situation just changes their calculus going into the season. 
And that whole factor is why I think Boston, in their long term, obviously in the short term they were helped by it, but in the long term they might have been burned a little bit by how bad the East was because they can they they're I think they're a a, a mid quality asset factory right now, but it's going to take a ton of luck for them to turn that into anything notable. Yeah, and and I do believe in Danny Ainge's ability to to make a big trade. I think he has the right relationships in the league to to screw any GM that he comes up against, but. Um, yeah, totally. When you look at, they decided to go for the playoffs and they made it. Miami tried to, but was just too injured and, and, uh, too underwhelming and ended up falling to the, to the 10th worst record in the league and ended up landing Justice Winslow. Um, whereas, you know, the, the Celtics, uh, did not do as well on the draft. I think universally, um, accepted that, um, Curry Rozier is, is fine, but, the gulf between having him as your first round draft pick and having Justice Winslow is just like immense. And so that's, you know, a bit of bad luck that came from doing, you know, what many believe to be the right thing and pushing for the playoff when you're on the fringe. It didn't work out for them, and we'll see how much that cost them down the road. You, the Heat are a good example, and the one that I would use there is actually the Pacers because the Pacers finished with the best record of a non-playoff mm-hmm. team in the East, and they got Miles Turner. I mean, some of that was yeah. good luck that he fell, but if you put Miles Turner on this Celtics team and you, you sacrifice, yeah, you sacrifice a first-round bid, but you do that, I think you have a much bigger piece for their future, whether you, whether you want to keep him or trade him. I mean, that's a, a, a massive difference between him and Rozier. Yeah, but then you don't get to injure Kevin Love in the first round of the playoffs, and you might have to watch <laughs> LeBron finally bring... Cleveland a championship and oh. you know so it was probably worth it in that respect to like take Cleveland out of the running for, for the title well, I, I think that people and I include myself in this have already forgotten how good this Cleveland team can be at full strength they're crazy talented yeah you know after watching a hobbled team without Kyrie and without Kevin Love taking it to the Warriors and actually making them sweat quite a bit in the finals. That Warriors team um, who pasted pretty much everyone in the West at one point or another um, in the regular season or in the playoffs, um, to see them do that was amazing. I mean, everything that's been said about LeBron uh, in his run in the playoffs last year is true. Um, to, to imagine what they can do at full strength, a, a full season and a half, two seasons with, with Kevin Love, Kyrie Irving. They added, you know, a couple more pieces in the offseason. They can still add a piece with that trade exception they picked up from the Brendan Haywood dealings. Um, yeah, they're going to be incredibly scary so long as LeBron's at full strength and those other guys stay healthy. The game I've been playing with people, I said I did this with a couple writers in Vegas, was excluding LeBron, how many starters could the Cavs lose and still be the favorites to win the East in the like if they started the playoffs how many starters would they need to lose to still and to still be the favorites in the conference yeah no totally I mean they could turn over they could swap rosters like you could you know take take Boogie Cousins off of the Kings and give give Cleveland the rest of that roster you could even take Rudy Gay off so take Rudy Gay and, and Boogie Cousins off the Kings uh, and then give that roster that's left over to to LeBron, and they'll be they'll be the favorites in the East easily. They'll be you know they'll, the odds the, the over under will be like sixty five games. Wow, that's even stronger than I would say. I mean, so like put LeBron on the Sixers, they would be you know at, at worst like the second 
the, the number two team in the preseason rankings, I would think, in the East. Like, well, who are you going to put above them? Yeah, and then you think about the idea that they could have drafted Nerlens Noel and had him anyway. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, Ma- they got Mozgov. That th- I think that was the move that really kind of took him over the top for me. Obviously, Love and Kyrie and LeBron are amazing, but Mozgov, other than in the finals because the Warriors are the Warriors, was a really big part of their success. Right, and even you know, in spots in the finals, he was a big deal. Uh, you know, the Warriors sort of let that happen. Um, they conceded that to, to try to bottle up LeBron a little bit more, but um, yeah, Moskov is completely legit. He's going to make an incredible amount of money one year from now, probably from Dan Gilbert, um, but it's going to be a massive amount of money. Who would you say has the best shot of, of beating the Cavs in a seven-game series in the East? Uh, that's a good question. You know, the I don't want to bet on the Pacers yet because, you know, Miles Turner is, is a rookie, um, and uh, Monte Ellis' playoff success has been pretty limited. Uh, over the last, you know, five, six, seven years. You know, Atlanta got a little weird in the offseason, adding Tiago Splitter. They lost Damari Carroll. They sort of knew they were going to lose Damari Carroll because of the contract situation with him and Paul Millsap. I think their backcourt still needs, you know, a couple more answers. But Jeff Teague is young and will grow. And Dennis Schroeder, uh, same deal, even younger, will get better. It's hard to, to count out their coach and their system. Uh, especially so long as, as Kyle Corver is out there um, shooting bombs. But it, seeing the Hawks after what the Cavs did to them shorthanded a year ago, uh, seeing the Hawks beat them in a series is going to be real, real tricky. The Wizards got better, but I don't know that they got better enough to, to really challenge the Cavs at all. People will mention the Heat. You know, the Heat got better in the offseason, got Justice Winslow. Uh, they have a full season of Goran Dragic. They have a full season, potentially, of Chris Bosch. Uh, they probably have half of a season of, of Dwayne Wade, per usual. Um, they didn't make the playoffs last year in a really bad conference. I, you know, People talking about them as potential number two seed in the East. I don't see it. You know, on paper, they look great. You know, they have, you know, potentially three all-stars in the starting lineup in Dragic, Wade, and, and Bosch. They'll play over the wall dang, and Josh McRoberts coming back, and uh, everything's well and good, but um, they didn't make the playoffs uh, in a historically bad East last year. I don't know how much I, I trust the bodies on that team or, you know, just just really the, the longevity or reliability of that team. Um, and then when you look at, like, they would be – the prediction if they went up against the full-strength Cavs and they were full-strength would still be uh, a Cleveland sweep, I think. I think that a full strength, full strength would be uh, would be interesting. I, again, I, I don't think it would be close. For me, the team that has the best shot, and it's crazy because I've undersold them in the playoffs for years, is Chicago. Just because they have mm-hmm. a guy in Jimmy Butler who I think can do a good job on LeBron, and their strengths in terms of the front court, especially if Miritich can come on like I think he will, are harder to negate. But. Mm-hmm you're going to have to figure out a way to handle Kyrie. You know, you're going to have to figure a lot of stuff. But again, you're picking between bad options. I think that the Hawks are going to be, I think that they're so well coached, they'll do fine in the regular season. But I, I feel like I'm going to be sitting there for the second year in a row and just, be, just not thinking they're going to do well in the playoffs just because when you narrow it down, they have a lot of good players, but it's really hard 
for them to 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 beat you in enough places to get the points that they get in the regular season because they have a they have a great team and they have great cohesion. But and people talk about oh the Spurs, yeah. The Spurs have three, possibly four Hall of Famers on their team. It's a lot easier right. to do that when you have those guys. And yeah, they're older, but Tim Duncan was a monster last year. You know, it's not like he's he's old. He's in his he's in his late thirties, but he's playing really well. So you don't you don't discount that when he's still doing it. I would actually discount Parker to a degree more because he's showing his age more than Tim Duncan is. But the Hawks, when you look, when you think about it, and you, one of the ways that for a seven-game series that I like to consider a playoff series is, who are you going to game plan for, and who's going to smoke you? And Horford's a great player; I really like him a lot, but he's probably the guy that you do that with. If you have a guy that you can just say, "Hey, you sit on Kyle Korver, you make his life miserable," especially if Boonholzer is going to give him a tough defensive assignment, then you just do that. And Teague is good, and those guys are fine, but. They're not going to beat you badly enough that you have to bend away from whatever you wanted to do. Right. I think we saw that quite a bit with Washington, who gave them a series and took them to six games, even though, you know, Atlanta had a, a monster regular season. And John Wall, you know, was, was banged up during that series and missed a game. That's, that's sort of the, the problem with the Hawks is when you play such an egalitarian style, you're moving the ball and, and all of that. You know, at, at some point, you have to have someone that you can absolutely rely on in every situation. They didn't have that, and they still don't have that. It's just sort of part and parcel with the style they play. You know, Paul Flannery has written about this quite a bit, the star versus system argument. And, you know, it, it's been borne out that the star usually wins those arguments, even though you can do well in the playoffs, and even though, you know, the systems matter a lot especially when you look at the Spurs and, and now the Warriors. Um, but those systems happen to have huge stars. Um, you know, the recent Spurs had Kawhi Leonard, who's one of the, the, the top ten players in the league, might be, you know, one of the top five guys under 30, um, a, a two-way brilliant star. Um, that matters. You know, the Hawks don't have that kind of guy. Horford's their best player, and, you know, he's he's an absolute all-star and probably an all-NBA guy most seasons, but just not that type of offensive player that you can give the ball to and, and expect something every time down, um, or at least expect a good chance at something every time down because he's not uh, much of a creator necessarily. Um, and then defensively, um, he's, he's really good for what he is, um, but he's not a guy like Duncan who, you know, was on the all-defensive all team every season for like a decade. So, yeah, it's, it's going to be a, a little more of a struggle, I think, this year. Teams are not going to be surprised by them to get lost uh, a, a bit of, of wing strength, which was their strength. They really depend on, on Tabo Cephalosha coming back healthy or Kent Bazemore um, getting really good really fast. Yeah, I, I think that's a great point. Are, are there any teams that we haven't talked about that you're really excited to see on the court next year? Uh, the, the Timberwolves, they're not going to win a ton, but... Um, I think they're everyone's early elite pass favorite, definitely. Yeah, they're gonna they're gonna be a blast. Utah is gonna be awesome. I think Utah is gonna make the playoffs. Um, I think they're gonna have a really good shot at it. I mean, they they have so much talent. And they did well last year. Mm -hmm. And then I I've had a fascination the last couple of years. Well, not the year they were horrendous, though. I watched bad basketball with the Bucks. We talked about them a little bit, but another year with Kid, and I I think that Monroe's defense has been a little bit. I don't know the right word. It's been it's been overstated how that he was bad at defense because he was playing out of position. 
And I think he's right. in the perfect system because they're, they're going to ask him to do a lot less than the average center. And his skills on offense, I think, are going to help them a lot. And I don't love Michael Carter-Williams. I especially don't love Michael Carter-Williams there. But the rest of their lineup, two through five, and depth, too, even after giving away Pachulia and Jared Dudley for whatever reason, their depth for 48 minutes, at least when they're healthy, is going to be pretty good, too. Yeah, definitely. They have a lot of flexible guys who can play multiple positions. Jabari and Giannis are like a nightmare to game plan against, I can imagine. Um, and so having those guys and having Monroe to sort of open things up a little bit by drawing some attention and drawing the double when he gets going, I think he will be better um, on both ends for not having Andre Drummond next to him. Andre Drummond is a much better prospect than, than Greg Monroe and, and perhaps a better player right now. Um, certainly more impactful on the court, but you know he soaks up a lot of space and um, he's so inflexible a player, especially offensively. Well, on both ends, really. Um, he really has to be around the rim to do anything on either end. Um, that restricts what everyone else around him can do. Um, and so I think Monroe is going to benefit greatly from from having more space to himself and be able to, to, to do a little bit more on both ends. Um, but, yeah, they're definitely an interesting team. Uh, they, I mean, their, their story offensively is going to be, you know, can they get enough open shots down in, into the net? to stay in games and win, you know, 50 games this year. Yeah, I, I agree with that. And are you feeling like the, that Flip Saunders is going to kneecap the Wolves' watchability a little bit this year? I think they're still going to be fascinating, but I, I think there's a little bit of a Byron Scott effect that will happen there too. Yeah, definitely. I mean, they don't have shooters um, either, so it's perhaps not a great loss if they don't shoot a ton of threes. Um, I, I think hopefully he just kind of lets them play a little bit. I was a little bummed that he didn't go out and get a coach um, this off season. I don't know exactly who he would have went out and gotten, but I was a little bummed that he didn't um, sort of turn over the keys to this team to a, a young coach who plays a more exciting style. They, get, they would get these guys amped up, maybe squeeze something out of Anthony Bennett. And, you know, or did they trade him? I can't even. No, they still have track. him. They still have him. Yes. Um, I, I, have it, him and Thomas Robinson have completely lost track of Thomas Robinson's on the Nets now. Right, he finally made it to the Nets after the the Sixers screwed the Nets last year and and picked him up. So yeah, I mean, there's definitely that possibility. Flip Saunders has made uh, potentially fun teams boring in the past, um, and I wouldn't put it past him to do it again. But I still think the talent there is so interesting and rich that. Um, there's got to be something something watchable in there between Rubio and Levine and, and Shabazz, Muhammad, um, and then, of course, the big guy in the middle and, and Andrew Wiggins. I mean, that's just a, a phenomenally athletic, interesting rotation that something interesting has to come out of it, even though they're, they're probably going to lose you know, 60 games. I think it's going to help them a lot that they end up losing 60 this year because they can get that last piece and then they can really push forward. What they need to do is just clarify, you know, what they're going to do and understand what they have in a guy like Carl Towns. Is he going to be a center, which I think he will be or a power forward, but they're going to benefit from the West being so stacked because even if they do better than expected, they're still going to get whooped a lot. Absolutely. They're going to rack up those losses and they're probably going to have the worst record in the league which will be interesting because that will mean that the Sixers will have never had the worst record in the league despite trying their absolute best to be the worst. Yeah. 
Speaking of the worst, uh, I think it'd be I was fun. I've been thinking about it. I haven't made a full firm decision myself. What do you think is the worst contract of the offseason so far? I don't know that there were a ton of bad. You know, Aaron Baines for twenty million dollars, and that's a deal that's so small that it's never going to kneecap the team. Um, but the Pistons paying Aaron Baines twenty million dollars, I think, was was a bit much um, in terms of like one year spending that's not going to affect the team long term, but is way too much based on what you've done recently. You know, the nine point five million for Rajon Rondo is a bit steep, considering what other point guards got out there. But the Aaron Baines contract, I'm not. And of course, Al Farouk Aminu was the big early one that people were very questioning of uh, the thirty million over four years. But I think there's enough interesting stuff defensively, and the Blazers are going to be bad anyways, so it might be might be okay. But Aaron Baines, I think Reggie Jackson is the other one that raises eyebrows. So go Detroit. Yeah, I would say Reggie Jackson, Baines, and then Cantor. Canner is also especially bad to me because it limits Oklahoma City's flexibility in a couple of huge ways, and that's a problem considering I don't think he's that good, and I don't think what he brings is useful to Oklahoma City. They don't need an offense-only guy. They already have the best offensive player in the league. Yeah. No, he was definitely a special case that posed a lot of problems. They you know, perhaps shouldn't have done that trade in the first place to, yeah. to get him knowing that he was going to be a restricted free agent. But um, that that one's sort of water on the bridge. They made that decision in the in the uh, mid-season trade when they when they went and got him. Yeah. Uh, anything else you want to talk about? No, nothing I can think of. Well, thanks so much for taking time. It's been a pleasure to have you on. Yeah, thanks, Dean. Thanks again to Tom for taking the time to come on. You can read him at SB Nation, and you can also subscribe to his Good Morning It's Basketball newsletter. It's a daily compilation of what of what has happened in writing and news and the day before i read it every day i really enjoy it you can also follow him great follow on twitter at team ziller t-e-a-m-z-i-l-l-e-r loved having him on it was a great conversation i also recorded earlier this week with sam vicini that was a, a fun conversation as well on summer league i encourage you to give that a listen if you like the podcast it'd be great if you could subscribe to it on itunes You can also give it a review there. Both of those things really help. We had a nice little run in Summer League, and I'm going to continue with with good guests, and I hope that you keep listening. I really do appreciate it. Any input you have, I I appreciate that as well. You can email me at daniel.larue at realgm.com, or you can hit me up on Twitter at DannyLarue, D-A-N-N-Y-L-E-R-O-U-X. I read everything. I respond to as much as I can. I really do appreciate it. And um, the CBA Encyclopedia project's going on, of course, pieces for the sporting news. And I have a new project that's going to be over a series of sites that is going to be really exciting. It's not out yet, so I can't talk about it, but it's coming soon. By the time any of you listen to this, it probably will be out. So you can look for that. It's going to be over a series of sites, depending on how everything works out, but I'm really excited about it. So thank you so much for listening. Thanks again to Tom for coming on. Take care and make it a great day.
One of the best things about Randall's is all the friendly and helpful people. And now, Randall's is looking for more great employees just like you. That's right. All Randall's stores are now hiring friendly new faces to join their team. Ages 16 and up can apply today. If you or someone you know is looking for a job with flexible schedules, great benefits, career advancement opportunities, and even scholarships, then have them stop by the nearest Randall's store for more details. Randall's, it's just better.